this morning, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in the very first book, in the very front of your Bibles, the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 3. I don't know about you, but it's fun for me to meet and talk with people that I don't know too well. I'm a true extrovert. And some time ago, I was at a birthday party for one of my wife Janet's childhood friends. And I was just vaguely acquainted with the people that were there. And I got in in a conversation with a friendly older woman, and she found out that I was a pastor. And then she told me that she was Jewish and that she belonged to a progressive congregation. And then she asked, do you give a talk every week? I mean, do you get up and talk every week? And I said, well, yeah, sure. And then she said, our rabbi, our, our rabbi shares an uplifting tidbit, is what she said. <laughs> and he shares this uplifting tidbit from a song or a movie or a book that he recently read. And then she says, I love this part. At the very end, he gives us a little zinger. An uplifting tidbit with a little zinger is what she gets, what that whole congregation gets every week. And then she said, well, how do you come up with topics for your speech? And um, she said, do you look at current events? Um, How about poems or maybe books you've read or movies you've seen? How do you come up with topics for your speech is what she asked. I told her, I said, Christians have the Bible. And it's the Old Testament, and she nodded her head and said, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I said, it's the New Testament, too. And she says, okay. I said, we believe it's God's word. It's his very words. And I said, I use the scriptures as a foundation for my talk. We call it a sermon. And she said, okay. And I said, the Bible tells us that the gospel, which is the good news, the gospel is of first importance I said, that's the most important thing for us. And so she says, do you like it? Do you like to give that little talk on on Sunday? And I said, you know, every Sunday I'm excited to preach the gospel. It's it's nerve-wracking sometimes like this morning, but I said, I'm excited to preach the gospel. And we read the gospel, we sing about it, we talk about it. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. I said, there's nothing more important than the good news. And then she said this. She said, well, I could use a little good news today. And then I got to tell her God's story. We're in a sermon series entitled Epic. And and we're talking about God's great story. And in this series, we're learning from the Bible. uh, and, And it's not a series of disconnected stories with a little zinger at the end. It's it it's not like that. But it's primarily what we're learning is primarily it's a single story with four different movements. We started with creation over the last couple weeks, and now we're moving into what's called the fall. And then we move into redemption and then restoration. And God's great story has these four different movements that we're going to cover over the next few weeks. And we've covered this first movement on creation. And today we begin to talk about the fall of humanity. And as we come to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Dave did a really nice job a couple weeks ago of explaining creation to us. As we, as we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
it seems all is well. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It seems that all is well. And then suddenly we look at chapter 3, and chapter 3 opens, and then there's this serpent, and he's clearly evil, and he's calling God into question. And so with your Bibles open, you may want to follow along. You may not have the version that's going to be read, but you may want to follow along, or maybe you just want to just listen to the story of God. Maybe you want to close your eyes. But here is the second movement in God's story from Genesis chapter 3. Listen to this. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, Don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, You won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband, and he ate. Immediately, the two of them did see what's really going on, saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. When they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, hid from God. God called to the man. Where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid. God said, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree, and yes, I ate it. God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The serpent seduced me, she said, and I ate. God told the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head. You'll wound his heel. He told the woman, I'll multiply your pains in childbirth. You'll give birth to your babies in pain. You'll want to please your husband. But he'll lord it over you. He told the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, don't eat from this tree. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be painful, as having babies is painful for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way. Planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk. Until you return to that ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out as dirt you'll end up as dirt. The man known as Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife and dressed them. God said, the man has become like one of us, 
capable of knowing everything, ranging from good to evil? What if he now should reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat and live forever? Never. This cannot happen. So God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they'd been made. He threw them out of the garden and stationed angel cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. This is God's story for us today, God's word for us today. You know, the fundamental question about human nature, whether we are good or bad, cooperative or selfish, has provided sort of endless philosophical discussion and debate. Augustine's doctrine of original sin proclaimed that people were born broken. They were born broken and selfish and saved only through the power of divine intervention. And then there was a man, Thomas Hobbes, who came along, and he too argued that human beings were savagely self-centered, but he held that salvation didn't come through divine intervention. And on on the other hand, there were just a load of philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau who argued that people were good. They were basically good, and they were instinctively concerned with the welfare of other people. More recently, questions about human nature and selfishness and cooperation and deflection and collaboration have been brought to the surface in our world today by reality TV shows like Survivor, which tests the balance between selfishness and cooperation by pitting the strength of interpersonal relationships against the desire for a million bucks. So what is it that leads to selfishness and violence, that leads to corruption and business and scandals and government, that leads to war and atrocities, and that's consistent from the beginning of of time to now and probably in the future. We all know that there's evil in the world, and how do we explain the fall of humanity? Well, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3, sort of through that lens, and we'll ask the question, what about the fall of humankind? And we'll look at Genesis chapter 3 in four different points. First, let's take a look at, number one, a mocking servant, a serpent, a mocking serpent. Satan is speaking through the serpent here in verse 1, and right away readers say, who is Satan anyways, and where did he come from, and what's wrong with him, and how did he get that way? But this text here is to explain how we got to be the way we are and how we are now. And what we see is the fall of the human race starts not with an action, but with an attitude. It's not an act, but it's a sneer, really, how it starts. So take a look at the word here in verse 1 and maybe take a pen or a or pencil and underline or, or circle the word really there in verse 1 which could also be translated indeed. And so you can take a look at this phrase, and it might read, indeed, did he really say? You see, it shows that, that the sense of this is not that the serpent is denying what God said. He's just mocking what, what God said. He's not saying God didn't say it. He's saying, that's ridiculous, and it's laughable. I, I, I think you've probably heard someone say something like, did he really say that? Right? You've, you've heard someone say that before, right? They're, they're not asking, did it really happen? 
They're saying, was he such an idiot? Was he such a jerk to say that? Did he really say that? The serpent is not denying what God said. He's just mocking it. And he's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at what God said. He's trying to change their attitudes about what God said. And therefore, the fall of the human race starts not with an action or even a thought, but it begins with an attitude. The second thing we can see in chapter 3 of, of the book of beginnings here is there is a lie that's being told that God can't be trusted. There's a lie that's being told that God can't be trusted. Now here's what the serpent is saying. He's saying if you obey God, he's going to keep you down. God knows if you do this, you'll broaden your horizons, and he doesn't want you to. What Satan is trying to do is he's trying to get in the heart of the human race is this. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. If you obey God, you're not going to be happy at all. If you obey the will of God, it's going to cut off all your other options. It'll keep you from being all that you want to be, and you won't thrive, and you're not going to certainly flourish. I don't know about you, but I've heard that lie in my life. Have you heard that lie in your life before? What's so extremely interesting here is to see that Satan knows what is so crucial to destroy. Notice Satan doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't say to Adam and Eve, or he doesn't say, the only way I'm going to destroy the human race is to get everyone to disbelieve that God even exists. He doesn't even go after that at all. Satan denies here the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace and the goodwill of God behind all of those decrees. Satan is basically saying, if you obey God, you can't trust in his goodness. You can't trust him. You, you need to take life in your own hands here. And that lie is in my heart, and that lie has got to be in your heart. And, and you know what that lie is doing? It's eroding your trust in God. And, and that's why we say things like, well, I've, I've read the Bible, and I know I shouldn't have sex with this person that I'm not married to, but wouldn't it be great if I did? I know the Bible says that I shouldn't spend all my money on myself, and I should give, give some of it away, but I, I just really want to just get things for me. I know I'm not supposed to hold a grudge against this person and try to exact revenge on them, but man, it's going to feel good to get revenge. You're tempted. That's basically what it is. And do you know why you're tempted? You're tempted because underneath, you already believe that God can't be trusted. And your heart is saying, if I obey, I won't be happy. And the fact that Satan is trying to destroy our trust in the love of God is the root of all of our temptations. And so what we see here is we have a mocking serpent right away. And then we look and we see this mocking serpent is trying to is lying to us that God can't be trusted. But the third thing that I read when I read this chapter 3 is, what's the deal with a tree? Really? I mean, a tree. What's the great sin here? 
What's this great, horrible action? What, what is it that's ruined the human race here? They ate of the tree. What's wrong with that? What in the world would be wrong with eating from a fruit tree? By the way, a lot of people say, you know, I don't get it. We have the Ten Commandments, and sometimes those are hard to obey, but not to eat of a tree? You can see why stealing would be bad. I mean, it, it's, you can see why killing would be bad. You can see why adultery would be bad. But the tree? Eating from a tree? What was the big deal about this tree, anyways? What was so bad about that? And what's the logic behind don't eat from the tree? And God says, you can do anything. You're in paradise. I, I created this paradise for you. There's all kinds of trees you can eat from, but you can't eat from that tree. What was so bad about that? Here's what's so bad about it. What if God had actually given Adam and Eve an explanation. You see Adam and Eve, and they walk up to this tree that God talks about, and they say, what's so bad about eating from this tree? And God says to them, well, if you eat from the tree, there will be infinite suffering and misery and death for the rest of human history. If you were Adam and Eve and you heard God say that about the tree, I think you'd just say, never mind. There's tons of other trees in the garden, right? I mean, it would just make sense if that's the way it played out. But you know what? The reason God didn't give them the explanation is crucial. It's so critical to why the decree was so important and what it was all about. Let's take a look at this. If, if he had given them the explanation and said, and they looked at the tree and God said, no, no, all this is going to happen in all of history, so don't eat from the tree, they'd say, okay, I'm good. Let's go eat over there. You know, let's go eat over there. Let's go do something else. But what's going on here when we think about this? It's analysis. It's sort of this cost-benefit analysis. If God said it that way, they would say, it's not worth it. I think we all would have said, it's not worth it. But here's the question. Is cost-benefit analysis really obedience? No, I don't think so. It's cost-benefit analysis. It's self-interest. They're empowered. They, they get the explanation. So here's what's going on. This is it. God was saying to Adam and Eve, kids, I'm God. And your life is a gift to you. And the world is a gift to you. And I want you to live as if I'm God and you're living by my power. I want you to live as if this world is a gift and therefore not your possession to do any way you want or even to understand. I want you to see your lives as a gift, a gift from me, and therefore it's not yours and something you can do, your life is not something you can do with any way you want. God would say, therefore, don't eat from the tree. This is your chance. You can either choose to treat me as God and treat your life in this world as if it's a gift and that it belongs to me, and therefore, you have to do as I direct. 
or you can put yourself in the place of God. You can act as if your life is your own life and that you generated your life and that you can act as if this entire world is yours and you can use it as you please, any way you want. And you can treat me as God or you can put yourself in the place of God. That's why God didn't give them an explanation of the tree. The serpent knows that because the serpent says, eat from the tree and you're going to be like God. You see? And that's what Adam and Eve do. What's so important for us to see is you need to look beyond the rules of the Bible. You can call it pretty bluntly, just like that, the rules of the Bible. You have to look through the rules. Like, don't lie and don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. Don't fornicate. Don't, don't spend all, the money, all your money on yourself. Don't be selfish. All those things the Bible says, these are the rules. But behind the rules, you have to see behind the rules is don't put yourself in the place of God. Obey the rules because you're not God. God says, obey my rules, not because of a cost-benefit analysis that I'm going to explain to you through the scriptures. Don't do it that way. Not because you see why and you understand why you shouldn't do these things. But obey because I am God. You realize that every, virtually everything that's wrong with us and in this world, and is putting yourself in the place of God, this is the problem. And on, on one end, it's not hard to see that killing and murder and that kind of thing, which is awful and happens every day all over the world all the time, it's, it's not hard to see that all these things, killing and murder, is certainly putting yourself in the place of God. But you ever thought about something as simple as your anxiety? your worry about life. And some of us are just eaten up with worry. And we're so anxious. And why is that? Let me speak for myself. And I've shared this with you before. I get anxious because I believe I know the way my life should go. Right? Well, you don't know. It's, it's me, right? It's, it's, it's not you. I believe I know how the church should go. And I believe that I know how things should go in my everyday life. And I'm afraid of God who's in charge isn't going to get it right with my life. He's not going to do it the way I think it needs to go because I know better. I know better than him, I think. So what am I doing? I'm being eaten up with worry and anxiety because I'm putting myself in the place of God. And this is the sin behind all other sins. And because of the mistrust, we put ourselves in the place of God. We say, I can't trust God, so I have to do it myself. All of our problems, all of our problems are coming because we've done what the serpent asked us to do. And when we don't trust God, when we try to take control of our own lives, instead of submitting to God, just because he's God, how about that? Obeying God just because he's God. Instead of that, we believe the lie. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the mocking serpent. We see this lie that's being told that we can be like God and he can't be trusted. And then we understand the tree. 
but I really want you to see God's story from the perspective of one person from our Nova Church family. He's going to come up and share part of his story and how it relates to the fall. Would you please welcome Rick D'Amico. Okay. Good morning. My name is Rick D'Amico, and you need to know that Dean is making me do this. <laughs> I'm telling the truth about myself. A lifetime spent pursuing admiration, approval, and all from other people. All that pretense and all the effort wasted in three to five minutes. My mom took me to church, so I had to go. And I sat there, and I quickly understood that there was no possibility I was going to go to heaven. I was very aware of my sin. And you're thinking seven, but I was so very aware. I knew I needed Jesus, but didn't want that. I was too busy pursuing the admiration of the kids and the young adults around me. I postponed commitment to Christ until I was desperate at about 13 years old. And he entered my life, and that changed everything. And I knew that I belonged to him, but it changed everything except the fall. For me, the fall means my fault, my default. And my default is seeking the approval rather, uh, of people rather than the presence of Jesus and the leading of his spirit every day. So the battle's on. God's grace is drawing me. I begin to listen to the voice of Christ. I listen to the voice of everybody else, too. I read my Bible, I try to pray, I stumbled forward for years. I was a toddler, but most of the time it was easier to crawl after the approval of my friends and reach, then reach up and walk with Jesus. At home, my parents thought I was the good one, because I was. <laughs> the bar was low. <laughs> I earned good grades, what made me feel good, loved school and sports, that made me feel good. I worked multiple jobs so people said, well, you're a hard worker. That made me feel good. And if it made me feel good, I was in charge of it, and it was great. At church, I taught little kids, started children's church, served the Lord's Supper. But when I wasn't around church, I impressed my peers by uh, cursing constantly, regularly abused alcohol, stole my teacher's exams, sold them and a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, I still struggle with this, not the stealing exams, but I still struggle with <laughs> focusing on pursuing other people's approval. And what a miserable existence living on the scraps of other people's opinions. It's a diet of empty calories, so unsatisfying. There's never enough. Most of the time, the only person thinking about me is me. The only approval of Jesus, it's only the approval of Jesus Christ that even matters. It's connecting with him. That's real. It's real food and real drink. Slowly over the years, I began to understand that Jesus wasn't my enemy. He, he still loves me, even though he's seen all of this. He's watching, but not disapprovingly. He's disappointed at times, to be sure. But he's more like my coach with his arm around my shoulders saying, come with me. Listen for me. I'm right here with you. I'm sending you out. 
step up and follow my lead. Now I wake up in the morning before I even open my eyes and start planning my day, and then I stop and apologize. Say, what am I really supposed to do today? Help me hear your voice. Lead me through this day. Check me when I'm out of step. Keep me from going down a path I shouldn't travel. Show me the work you have for me. Let me rest in you at the end of this day. Because being in Christ and feeling his hand on my shoulder leading my life, it's fulfillment. It's victory. And it's real reason for joy. And that's what the fall means to me, fighting that battle every day, every moment. I challenge you to fight it as well. If you depend too much on what other people think, whether it be doing good deeds to gain approval or doing wild things to get attention, let that all go. Listen for Jesus' voice and feel his hand on your shoulder, coaching you up. And rise up and walk. Thank you, Rick. The fourth point that we can get out of Genesis chapter 3 here today, the last one is we see a snapshot of us in verses 8 through 10. Take a look at this and see if this isn't you here. It says in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The first thing we can see here in these verses is that we hide. We hide. The first thing you see is that now we're hiders. And, And if you take that idea and you look back over your entire life, just Stop and think back over your entire life and think, am I a hider? If you think about it in those terms, you're going to see so much of how you've hidden and who you've hidden from. Because we don't trust God, we hide from ourselves. And we, we cannot bear to know who we really are on the inside. And we can't have a realistic, honest appraisal of ourselves because we hide from ourselves. And then we hide from others. We, we hide from each other. We tell half-truths. and We're dishonest with one another. And, and most of all, we hide from God. Most of us are hiding from God because in the presence of God, we see the reality of who we really are. And we're hiding, and we're running from the truth and from God and each other's, and we're hiding from our, our very selves. But the thing that we could see is not just that we hide, but we see here in this text, God seeks God seeks. The other thing that's so remarkable is that when we hide, according to these texts, God seeks. It's our nature to hide. It's God's nature to seek. We are hiders. God is a seeker of us. God comes back and says, and I think this is almost comical when you read it, God comes back and he says, where are you to Adam? Now does Stop and think, does God really need that information? Where are you? 
Does he really not know what happened? Of course not. He knows what's happened. But what is he doing when he says, where are you? I think this is so beautiful. He's seeking us out. He's pursuing us. And we hide and he pursues. He's engaging us. In love, he's coming after Adam and Eve and us. In love, he's trying to counsel them. Like Rick is saying, it's a coaching. He's got his hand on their shoulder. Come on, you could do better now. Let me show you the way. And he's trying to get them to answer. Why are they hiding? And we learn in this text, it's real simple, but it's so profound. We hide and God seeks. The Bible from the very beginning teaches us this. And most importantly, God's, God's going out in love. And, it, and, and when God goes out in love, the ultimate expression of this love is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, all the things the serpent gave us is dealt with through Jesus Christ. I, let me just close with this. I, I think it's very prominent. What we see here in the Bible, what we read here today, and what, what, what we'll read later in the weeks to come, but let me just give you a, a little, little piece of this. In the Bible, there's two gardens, two prominent gardens. And in the Bible, we read about two prominent trees. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is struggling. And there's a garden. And see, centuries after Adam and Eve are struggling in the garden over a command about a tree, Jesus is in his own garden. And he's struggling over a command about a tree. And that tree is the cross. And he knows, Jesus knows, he's got to go to the cross and die for our sins and pay the penalty that we owe. And Jesus is struggling. Now think about this, though. Adam and Eve were in a bright, sunny Garden of Eden. And God says, obey me about the tree and you'll live. And they don't. Contrast that with Jesus Christ. He was in a garden, a dark garden. And God says, obey me about the tree. You'll be crushed. And he did obey for us. He turned the tree of death, the cross, into the tree of life for all of us. In this epic story of God, we see the effect of original sin on our own lives and how the fall is part of each and every one of our own stories but praise God for his mercy and his grace to send his son, Jesus Christ, to overcome sin and to die a death that was meant for us. Next week, we're going to look deeper and to see how the fall and sin affect, all those, affect us and all those around us in a very personal way. But that's for next week. Amen? Let's all stand for the benediction. The benediction comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. May God's grace and peace be multiplied in you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. By his divine power, 
may you know that God has given you everything you need to live a life set apart for him. And may you receive all of this by coming to know Jesus, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We'll see you on the plaza.